The RJR Nabisco directors who gathered at Skadden Arps on Monday morning, November 7th, were a sullen, irritated bunch. For three weeks, they had watched in growing horror as Ross Johnson turned their company into the centerpiece of a $20 billion circus, and more than a few on the board felt like fools for letting it happen. News of Johnson's secret pack was the crowning blow for a board already feeling the pressure of an anti-Johnson backlash among employees, shareholders, and the media that would grow to ear-splitting dimensions in coming days. By the time the committee met Monday, there was an unstated acknowledgement that things had gotten totally out of control. It was time, the directors agreed, to take matters into their own hands. The board's bankers had begun working on a restructuring plan of their own, an alternative in case Johnson and Kravis teamed up. More important on the morning's agenda, Peter Adkins had constructed a set of formal bidding guidelines for each of the three groups, Johnson, Kravis, and Forsman. The key was the deadline, 5 o'clock, Friday, November 18th, just 11 days away. Tensions were growing within the management group. Recriminations were only to be expected given its sorry performance to date. The Solomon bankers came to loathe Tom Hill, who made little effort to hide his contempt for his Solomon counterparts. The Solomon executives, in fact, were disenchanted with Johnson's entire team. As the board members prepared for Johnson's appearance that Monday morning, they were clearly testy. Their mood didn't improve when Johnson and Horrigan were escorted in to address them. Asked about the management agreement, Johnson stuck to his line that the Times had it wrong, that his share of the profits wasn't out of line with that of other LBOs. Asked for ways to cut costs in the tobacco business, both Johnson and Horgan stated flatly that there weren't any. Their attitude bordered on hostile, and it made them no points with the board. It was clear to everyone that a number of friendships wouldn't survive the auction. The backbone of any successful LBO is a set of projections, profits, sales, and most important, cash flow. Because they dictate the amount of debt a company can safely repay, projections are the key to formulating a correct bid. Kravis had hoped to emerge from his due diligence sessions at the plaza with a set of reliable projections, stonewalled as people had fallen further and further into a quagmire of confusion. By Monday, just four days before bids were due, Kravis knew something about Del Monte, a little about Nabisco, but next to nothing about Horrigan's tobacco business. The job of assembling Kravis's projections had fallen to a 30-year-old associate, Scott Stewart. By that Monday, Stewart was growing panicky. Every day he searched for the missing numbers, shouting at Dylan Reed, shouting at Lazard, shouting at his own accountants and lawyers crawling through the data room in Atlanta. And if missing figures weren't bad enough, Stewart didn't completely understand the ones he had. One number in particular puzzled them all. On the initial projections they had obtained from RJR Nabisco was a heading, Other Uses of Cash. Beside it was a row of figures stretching out to 10 years, each ranging from $300 million to $500 million. Stewart had no idea what to do with the numbers, but $500 million wasn't the kind of sum Henry Kravis liked his people to ignore. The swing between adding and subtracting it was nearly a billion dollars, roughly the difference between a bid of 96 a share and 92 a share. Then, on Monday, Stewart took a call from a Dylan Reed associate who wanted to know if he might be interested in talking with John Grinnis, who'd just finished speaking with a special committee. Stewart took the offer to Paul Rather. Sure, why not, Rather replied. That afternoon, they met Grinnis at a Midtown hotel, the Carlton House. The path John Grinnis had chosen since his fateful meeting with Johnson was radical, but as he saw it, unavoidable. He hated the very idea of this LBO, yet he hated equally the fact that he hadn't been invited to join the management group. No use getting mad, though. He would get even. He was almost certain Johnson would get the company, but if a top-secret tidbit helped the directors see Johnson's true colors, John Grinnis would see they got it. If another bidder gave Nabisco a better shake than Johnson, he would aid and abet the enemy. The two-and-a-half-hour speech John Grinnis embarked on that Monday afternoon at the Carlton Hotel was among the most startling Paul Rather had heard in a decade of LBO work. In one fell swoop, Grinnis laid bare Nabisco operating secrets and strategies, its vulnerabilities and follies. Nabisco, Grinnis stated with confidence, could increase its operating income 40% in a single year if necessary. Profit margins could be taken to 15% from 11. Come on, Rather said in disbelief. No, you don't understand, Grinnis replied. Our charter is to run this company on a steady basis. The biggest problem I'll have next quarter is disposing of all the additional cash these businesses generate. The earnings are going to be too big. Christ, I've got to spend money to keep them down. It was all done, Grinnis explained, because Wall Street craved predictability. Paul Rather's head was spinning when he left the meeting. He hustled back and reported immediately to Kravis. It was the first piece of good news the pair had heard in nearly two weeks. By the next day, the impact of John Grinnis' assumption was clear.
If everything he said was true, Henry Kravis could boost his bid from the low 90s to nearly $100 a share. The computer runs on Ted Forsman's desk told the grim story. There was only one way to boost the returns enough to justify a bid. North of 90, Forsman could see, they could bid only with the aid of a Goldman Sachs bridge loan, which would be refinanced through the sale of junk bonds. Forsman cringed at the thought. He and his partners realized the risk such a loan entailed, but the simple truth was that even if they'd wanted to use junk bonds, Forsman's anti-junk diatribes had painted them into a corner. To go with a junk bond finance bridge loan at this point would invite public ridicule. Their mood was somber as they met. I guess we should just end this, Forsman said. He broke the news to Boise and his three corporate partners. After the initial furor subsided, he wrote out a long press release citing in detail Forsman Little's reasons for backing out of the deal. Before he released it, he read it to Peter Atkins, who tried to get him to change it. The release sent the wrong message to junk bond buyers and to a banking industry already jittery about LBO debt, Atkins thought. But Forsman wouldn't budge. Finally, Atkins and Charlie Hugel had to blackmail Forsman by threatening to put out their own press release, accusing Forsman of acting in a hostile and unethical way. The next morning, Forsman Little issued a terse one-sentence press release, bowing out of the bidding for RJR Nabisco with nary a peep of explanation. On Monday morning, in an upstairs conference room at Skadden Arps, Peter Atkins was steering the special committee through its paces. Around him, the auction framework Atkins had erected was humming smoothly. Everything seemed under control, just the way Atkins liked it, when a letter was carried into the meeting and placed before him. Atkins had hoped to avoid something like this. The five-page letter beneath the first Boston letterhead was a monkey wrench aimed squarely at the gears of his machine. Setting the letter down, Atkins faced the assembled directors. There's something else we have to deal with here, he announced. First Boston, founded in 1934 and until the late 1970s, a sleepy second-tier underwriter, rocketed to the fore of major investment banks, thanks largely to the brains and chutzpah of Bruce Wasserstein and Joe Perella, the takeover era's first superstars. When they decided to leave First Boston in February 1988, they took with them more than 20 top dealmakers and some of the firm's clients, too. First Boston's merger effort was Wasserstein and Perella. When they left, the man chosen to pick up the pieces was Jim Maher, co-head of First Boston's investment banking and merger departments. Now, eight months after the resignations, Maher was desperate. First Boston was the only major investment bank not involved in the RJR and Nabisco deal. It was worse than humiliating. Sitting on the sidelines during history's largest takeover sent a dire message to every First Boston competitor and client. Coming just four days before the bid deadline, Maher's proposal was a rank long shot. But if it could somehow emerge with a piece of the action, Maher knew, he could rescue his department from its decline. If he failed, Maher had no doubt, he would be a laughingstock. When news of Ross Johnson's $75 a share proposal inched down his computer screen, Maher had immediately convened a meeting to draw up an attack plan. But no one wanted to hire First Boston to represent them. Door after door slammed in Maher's face. A group of Maher's investment bankers began grumbling among themselves. And out of that grumbling came what they first thought, just a big crazy idea. They would put a group together and buy the whole thing themselves. They owed it to themselves to try. Led by banker Kim Fenebresk, a group of them began telephoning LBO buyers who might be interested in forming a consortium to bid for RJR Nabisco. Unfortunately, they had little luck. For several days, First Boston's RJR team fell into a funk. Greg Malcolm, the firm's junk bond chief, jokingly captured the mood. We're just a dog chasing a bus, he told colleagues. The inference was clear. First Boston, in attempting to join the battle for RJR, was out of its league. Maher was scared, but not totally without options. Late one Friday afternoon, Brian Finn had burst into his office with another of his schemes. One of First Boston's brightest young stars, Finn was Wall Street's version of a computer hacker. What Finn laid out to Maher was a strategy that was complex, incomplete, and an incredible long shot. It turned on an esoteric tax law loophole set to expire December 31st, just two months away. Maher was skeptical, but gave Finn the go-ahead to flesh it out. There were, Finn admitted, some unique problems to be ironed out. For one thing, deferring $3.5 billion in taxes, a conservative scenario, was unprecedented. 
According to Finn's calculations, this single transaction would boost the annual federal deficit by 2%. It's clear, Finn said, that Washington would go apeshit. But the brash young banker argued that Congress was unlikely to intervene. Also still open was the question of a partner to make Finn's idea work. That was finally solved when Jay Pritzker, the respected Chicago investor who owned Hyatt Hotels, agreed to be part of the deal. Tuesday morning, just three days before the Friday bid deadline, Finn and three first Boston colleagues came to Lazard's offices to present their proposal in detail. But the Lazard bankers thought the idea too complicated and risky. And in a letter to Maher, Peter Atkins said the board wasn't going to allow First Boston a chance for due diligence. If First Boston wanted to bid, it would have to fly blind. News of First Boston's odd proposal surfaced in the press Thursday morning. Few details were available, but almost no one seemed to take it seriously. Two days left. As the deadline neared, Johnson's malaise lifted a bit. He spent long evenings at Jim and Linda Robinson's apartment hashing through pricing strategies. Most nights, Horgan, who had a company apartment downstairs, would join them, and Linda would scurry around serving drinks. When her husband and Johnson disappeared into a back room, Linda knew they were talking about the management agreement. The pact was gently being renegotiated. By Wednesday, November 16th, when the revised agreement was approved in a meeting in Cohen's office, Johnson had agreed to cut two points from his group's stake to 6.5% and to sharply scale back the incentive bonuses. New, detailed provisions were included for spreading the stock to 15,000 RJR Nabisco workers. The Kravis camp's buoyant reaction to John Grenis's disclosures was short-lived. Working blind, Stewart had overestimated RJR Nabisco's available cash. $1.3 billion had to be lopped off their projections. It was roughly $6 a share. Kravis was shaken. It wasn't just the effect of the projections. Kravis could live with that. The more severe blow was to their confidence. If they could be that far off on fundamental numbers, how reliable were the rest of their projections? What else didn't they know? All their analysis was suddenly open to question. All this began to sink in on Thursday, not 36 hours before bids were due. It was a very bad time to get cold feet. Friday morning, it was a somber group that Kravis gathered in his office. They were filled with doubts. The discussion went around the room, and with each circuit, the group grew more and more downbeat. At the outset, Kravis and Rather were bullish, comfortable with a bid of $97 or $98. Roberts wasn't comfortable with anything much above $93. By 2.30, they still hadn't decided on their offer. At first, Boston, selecting lawyers to prepare its bid, normally the most routine of tasks, had become a problem. Every major firm seemed to be up to its elbows in RJR Nabisco. Finally, Maher selected a little-known outfit named Winthrop, Stimson, Putnam, and Roberts. The firm's first task would be drafting a formal bid letter to be sent Friday afternoon. But the search took so long that the lawyers weren't briefed until Thursday night, and the draft letter they delivered Friday morning was a disaster. Maher wasn't too worried. They had all day to rework the five-page letter. But the scene degenerated into bedlam. A half-dozen Winthrop lawyers attempted to recast the letter. A first Boston contingent attempted its own version. Drafts were written and torn up. Lunch was brought in. Tempers grew short. More drafts were written and discarded. It was two hours before the five o'clock deadline when a copy of the revised letter was delivered to Maher's office. He read it in silence and then exploded, kicking the leg of his mahogany desk and slamming his fist violently onto the desktop. The letter seemed to jump from point to point with no focus. Peering through its tangled verbiage, it wasn't clear exactly what First Boston wanted from the board. Maher attempted to dictate the letter himself, but as the deadline approached, he and the lawyers were still arguing whether to bid for the entire company or just the tobacco operation. A few minutes before five, Maher called Skadden Arps and told Atkins the letter might be a few minutes late. It was past two o'clock and the Shearson Group hadn't yet produced a final offer either. Steve Goldstone's partner at Davis Polk, Gar Basin, had been preparing more than a dozen major documents that couldn't be completed without a final number. Basin got his number just after three. By a quarter to four, the lawyer could see details of the bank letters were falling into place. But it was also clear the three-inch bid package wouldn't be ready in time for the run uptown to Skadden Arps. The logistics of time-sensitive midtown deliveries were familiar to all Wall Street firms. At 4.20, Basin ordered four lawyers, including a Davis Polk associate named Richard Truesdell, into a car for the trip uptown. 
As they walked out, Basin handed Truesdell an NEC portable telephone. Every five minutes, Goldstone dialed Truesdell, who rode shotgun. Where are you now? What block are you on? Worried looks broke out at Davis Polk as the cab nosed through heavy traffic. With five minutes till the deadline, it crawled to a stop at 55th and 1st, where it froze in the grip of a Friday afternoon traffic jam. Goldstone was on the verge of hysteria. Get out of the cab and run, he barked at Truesdell. The four attorneys piled from the taxi and began sprinting the two long blocks to Skadden Arps. Goldstone listened to Truesdell's labored breathing over the portable phone. We're at 55th and 2nd. When Truesdell's breathless group reached Scadden Arps, their path was blocked by a throng of photographers and television cameras. The lawyers plunged like fullbacks through the assembly and into the lobby. On the 34th floor, a receptionist directed them to an upper floor. As they spilled from the elevator, their way was blocked by an enormous security guard. A minute later, Truesdell was escorted into the reception area where, exhausted, he handed Peter Atkins the binder containing the group's bid. It was 5.01. The largest takeover bid in corporate history was late. Truesdell prayed no one would notice. The Kohlberg-Kravis bid under one arm, attorney Casey Cogut glided unnoticed past the photographers and into Skadden Arps' lobby at ten minutes before five. Upstairs, Cogut ducked past the security guard and called for Atkins with minutes to spare. Cogut handed Atkins the binder and left. By seven o'clock, a full two hours after the deadline had passed, First Boston still had no bid. By nine o'clock, Maher had had enough. He ordered the letter sent. Attorneys were still suggesting changes as copies were being run off. They were shouted down. All pretense at diplomacy was dropped as shouts ricocheted through First Boston's emptying halls. Just get it out. Go on. Go on. Get out of here. The television cameras and reporters were long gone when a pair of First Boston bankers trudged the five blocks to Skadden Arps at half past nine. It was cold and the two men were miserable. Upstairs, no one wanted to take their bid. Atkins' secretary said he was in a meeting and couldn't be bothered. They handed the woman the letter. Leaving a phone number, the two men swiftly departed. It wasn't even close. Henry Kravis had bid $94 a share, $21.62 billion. Johnson had swamped him with a bid of $100 a share, or $23 billion. This was going to be easy, Atkins could see. By 9 o'clock, he dismissed the investment bankers and told the directors that they too could go home. The committee would meet Sunday morning to formally declare Johnson the winner. In the meantime, representatives of both bidding groups would come in Saturday morning to explain the securities in their bids. It was a formality, but Atkins was determined to cover all the bases. When First Boston's proposal was finally passed to him, Atkins read it closely. He hoped to brush it off. Yet First Boston was suggesting it could attain between $105 and $118 a share using Brian Finn's tax loophole strategy. Atkins was no tax expert, but if Maher could do what he said, First Boston's approach could be worth $3 billion more than the other proposals. This, Atkins could see, would be a matter for Skadden's tax counsel, Matthew Rosen. If Maher's proposal could work, the entire process would probably be thrown into chaos. After examining the proposal, Rosen reported to Atkins that the proposal had a chance of working. On Saturday, groups from Colbert, Kravis, and Shearson were being grilled at Skadden Arps by teams from Lazard and Dylan Reed. Each group was asked to explain in detail each component of their bid package, with particular emphasis on its securities. Neither group knew the official result of the auction, and neither group knew that while they were being interviewed, Peter Atkins was on the phone with Jim Maher, trying to clarify certain aspects of the first Boston proposal. All three bidding groups spent the day anxious and uncertain about their chances, consumed with speculation about what was happening. On Saturday, at Jim Robinson's Connecticut farm, the Robinsons and the Johnsons also found it impossible to think about anything else except the committee's deliberations. Dinner that night was Chinese food and telephone receivers. All through the meal, Johnson and the Robinsons worked their sources for information. All they could discover was that the full RJR board meeting, set for tomorrow to rubber stamp the special committee's recommendation, had been canceled. Something, Johnson said, is very, very peculiar. But whatever the reason for the delay, he told the Robinsons, this is bad news for us. Sunday morning, the special committee knew what had to be done. Matt Rosen's tax opinion meant they couldn't ignore the first Boston proposal and its promise of a bid as high as 118 a share. In order to give Maher's troops time to firm it up, a second round of the auction would have to be declared. All bids, 
including Johnson's winning $100 offer, would be thrown out. Not everyone was pleased with the decision, but the directors agreed without much debate. Extending the auction was a risk they would have to take. No matter how much they wanted to get this over with, it looked as if they weren't yet finished. Before adjourning at 1 o'clock, Atkins left the room to see how much time Maher would need. Maher wanted two weeks, but knew he couldn't get it. Atkins suggested extending the bidding deadline to a week from Monday, just eight days away. Maher, mindful of the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday, suggested a 10-day extension instead. Okay, Atkins said, Tuesday, November 29th at 5 o'clock, it would be. Late Sunday afternoon, Johnson's team heard the news. The Solomon investment bankers were furious, but Jack Nussbaum, one of Shearson's lawyers, put an optimistic spin on events. Well, we're obviously in a good position. The first Boston thing will fall through and we'll still be in the lead. I don't believe it, Johnson said. They now know our maximum bid. They know where we are. Under no circumstances is this management group going to get this bid, he predicted. Ross, John Goodfriend asked, do you really think the board is against you? They're not against me, Johnson explained. They're for themselves. It's a pretty big damn difference. Henry Kravis knew by all rights he should have lost. His reaction Sunday afternoon was reverent. God, we just got another life. He and Roberts immediately scrambled to learn more details of their first Boston offer. It was a shocker. Then, as the details of the bid dribbled in, Kravis saw how flimsy it really was. There was no way First Boston could complete it. Still, when he and Roberts and Beatty met late Sunday afternoon, on the face of it, they agreed they were in a pretty rotten position. Hold on a minute, Roberts said. He wasn't so sure third place was that bad. In fact, Roberts said, we're exactly where we want to be. Let's just lay low. We'll put out the word we don't know what we're going to do. It's the truth. You're right, Kravis said, catching on. It made perfect sense. If they were coming back strong in the second round, why let on? And on the remote chance they backed out, why not save themselves some embarrassment? The first step they could see was a press release. We must carefully consider our alternatives, the firm announced in a release Sunday evening. In light of new information we will be receiving before reaching any judgment on what further steps, if any, we might take. An eerie stillness descended over Wall Street as the bidders began their postmortems Monday morning. Behind closed doors, Wall Street's vast takeover machine had ground to a halt. The reason was simple. The commercial banks, poised to commit nearly $15 billion or more to the eventual victor of the RJR Nabisco auction, had all but stopped work on every other takeover until their decks were cleared. More than one trader was reminded of an old western where townspeople cleared the streets so the outlaws could fight. Wall Street may have been becalmed, but there was nothing calm about the goings-on at First Boston Monday morning. Maher's troops weren't simply enthused, they were pumped. They had succeeded where no one, not even themselves, had expected. My friends, said Greg Malcolm, the junk bond chief, the dog has done caught the bus. Maher got down to business, parceling out assignments to each of his team leaders. They had just eight days to mount the largest, most complicated takeover bid in Wall Street history. Greg Malcolm had the toughest job leading the financing team. Not only were Malcolm's people to raise more than $15 billion at a time when most banks were already neck deep in LBL loans, but he was charged with finding a bank to breathe life into Finn's installment notes tax scheme. Monday found Ross Johnson in a foul mood. He felt he had been cheated by his own board, people he considered his friends. He knew it was true. He had lost his own board's support. There was little to be done to prepare for the second round. Wednesday afternoon, Johnson packed his bags and boarded his Gulfstream jet for a Florida Thanksgiving. Monday afternoon, Peter Cohen returned a call to Dick Beatty from his limousine, which was speeding toward JFK Airport in a flight to Brussels. He congratulated Cohen on his bid, and the two men briefly discussed First Boston's chances. Then Beatty added, Everybody around here is pretty depressed. I don't know what we're going to do about this second round thing. We may not do anything. We're all going to take off for the holiday, I think. After hanging up, Beatty looked at the phone a minute. He hadn't lied. He hadn't intentionally misled Cohen. It was true. Kravis didn't know what he was going to do. On the other hand, he sensed no skepticism from Cohen. If Cohen got the impression Kravis was out of the bidding, well, so be it. To the public, the bidding for RJR Nabisco seemed frenzied, the emergence of a third bidding group transforming it into a wide-open race. But in the subdued hallways and offices of Lazard Frere and Dylan Reed, there was no such enthusiasm. Few among them had any confidence that First Boston would come back in eight days with a concrete proposal. Far more ominous was the poor showing by Kravis. 
and their Sunday evening press release with its suggestion that no second bid might be forthcoming seemed ominous. From the beginning, the committee's mission had been to keep alive two viable bidders to produce the highest value for shareholders. If both First Boston and Kravis failed to resurface with second bids, the committee was left with one alternative, Ross Johnson. That made Felix Rowaton, the dean of the committee's bankers, uneasy. Rowaton marked out two paths of action. First, Kravis had to be saved. That meant plying him with data and advice that showed RJR Nabisco warranted a strong second round bid. Second, the committee had to refine a recapitalization plan that, in the worst case, could be used as leverage in the event Johnson came to the bidding table alone. The campaign to save Kravis began Monday. A Lazard team gave Kravis every new piece of data it could find on R.J. or Nabisco, making sure Kravis got the message that there was more inside Johnson's company than met the eye. Tuesday afternoon, the Kohlberg-Kravis troops began to scatter for the holidays, Roberts to San Francisco and Rather to Florida. Wednesday afternoon, as Kravis prepared to fly with his wife and children to Vail, he took a call from Linda Robinson. Robinson insisted she wasn't calling on business, but Kravis didn't believe it. She wanted to know if he would bid again. For the first time, Kravis decided to lay it on thick. He wanted Linda Robinson to run back to her husband with news that he was out of the bidding. I'm just tired, he said, turning on the sincerity. I'm leaving this afternoon. I can't wait. I've told all my people they ought not to think about this deal, not even think about it while they're away. I really don't know what we're going to do about next week. We probably won't even bid at all. Wednesday afternoon, John Martin's assistant, Bill Liss, found out that Time magazine planned a cover story titled Greed on Wall Street, featuring none other than F. Ross Johnson on the cover. Liss called John Martin, who relayed the news to Linda Robinson. All three were worried. A hard-hitting Time cover was all they needed, with bids due in less than a week. They instructed Liss to use the prospect of an exclusive Johnson interview as a bargaining chip with Time. Maybe, just maybe, they could keep Johnson off the cover. Friday morning, Johnson met the Time reporter in Florida. R.J.R. Nabisco's president was his usual breezy self. The magazine was due on newsstands the following Monday, and Linda Robinson called to ask Johnson how it went. God damn if I know, he said. Journalists are journalists. They'll take out of it what they want to take out of it. After spending the holiday with his family, Maher was back in his office at First Boston Friday morning. Most of his team had stayed through Thanksgiving, their feasts consisting of pressed turkey dinners in styrofoam containers from a nearby delicatessen. The place looked like a fraternity on Sunday morning. They were making headway thanks to the appearance three days earlier of John Grenis. Grenis, after guiding Kravis through RJR and Nabisco, was now blazing the same trails for First Boston. Despite some progress, Maher was deeply worried. None of their preparation mattered if Greg Malcolm's bank team couldn't obtain the funding for Finn's monetization proposal, and Malcolm was clearly having trouble. Then, Friday afternoon, came a glimmer of hope. Chase Manhattan had agreed to look at the proposal. Maher crossed his fingers. On Friday, Paul Rather, whose eagerness for the bidding was mounting daily, reached George Roberts at his home, hoping to gauge Roberts' own enthusiasm for the second round. Gee, I don't know, Robert said. I'm trying to clear my mind of all this. I'm sick of talking about it. I'm telling you, George, we can bid as high as the 105 range and still get good returns, Rader said. But Roberts was being cagey. Rader couldn't tell whether his message had any effect. On Saturday, Rader reached Kravis on his way to the slopes. For two days, Kravis had put RJR Nabisco out of his mind and didn't mind a bit. Now he and Rader agreed everyone on the team ought to get together Monday night back in New York. By the weekend, the drumbeat that had begun so quietly in the days before Thanksgiving was growing louder and louder. All weekend, Shearson and the management group had heard the same message repeating from every corner. Kravis won't be there. Kravis won't be there. Kravis won't be back. Through every back channel from every Kravis investment banker and lawyer, the rumor spread. Kravis was bidding low if he was bidding at all. The question was, would they believe it? Monday morning, Felix Roatan convened a meeting of the Board of Advisors at Lazard Frere. There was much to do in the final 36 hours before bids were due. Now, more than ever, they had to examine the feasibility of restructuring. The advisors decided to take the risk. If they were certain the recap could be valued at $100 a share, why not let the bidders know it? That way, they could set a bidding floor, hinting pointedly that the board stood ready to reject anything less. It was a bluff, more or less. And while directed mainly at the management group, fairness dictated the same message be passed to all three. Therein lay the gamble. 
laying a $100 floor might be enough to scare off at least one of the other bidders. During that Monday, teams of board advisors from Dylan Reed and Lazard Frere delivered the message to a Shearson Solomon contingent, to Jim Robinson, and to Henry Kravis. Kravis was still insisting he wasn't sure what he was going to do. I don't know if I'm going to bid at all. I've just had all this bad publicity, he told Felix Roatan. On Monday, First Boston's carefully wound ball of string began to unravel. Somehow, Greg Malcolm had managed to gain multi-billion dollar pledges from Credit Suisse and a French bank for the tobacco half of their plan. All that remained was for Chase Manhattan to finish work on the monetization proposal. But Monday afternoon, Malcolm was informed that Chase wouldn't do it. It seemed that First Boston had crawled upward through layer after layer of bureaucracy, only to be tomahawked by Chase Manhattan's senior credit officer. Malcolm was stunned. When Jim Maher heard the news, he closed his eyes. We're in big trouble. Time magazine hit the newsstands Monday, and it was even worse than Linda Robinson had feared. A game of greed, the cover blared over a picture of a thoughtful Ross Johnson, hand on chin. This man could pocket $100 million from the largest corporate takeover in history, it read. Has the buyout craze gone too far? On Tuesday morning, First Boston's bid hung in limbo. That morning, Maher and his aides were busy arm-twisting senior officials at Chase Manhattan on the monetization proposal. They got nowhere. Maher decided to lower his sights. If a bank wouldn't agree to fund the monetization proposal, First Boston had to get someone to vouch for the soundness of the idea. Maher needed something to give the board to convince them the project was workable. A Citibank team agreed to consider writing a letter of support. They arrived at First Boston at 2 o'clock, and Kim Fenebrask briefed them. At 11 o'clock Tuesday morning, Kravis and Roberts met with their investment bankers, telling them in uncertain tones they hadn't decided whether they would bid that afternoon. Both men had their own ideas, but the last people they were telling them to were their investment bankers. With any luck, someone would unknowingly pass the misinformation within earshot of Peter Cohen. No one was concerned about First Boston. From his bank contacts, Kravis knew of Maher's mounting problems. Afterward, Kravis and Roberts convened the informal roundtable in Kravis's corner office. Each man offered his viewpoint one final time. Kravis was prepared to lead the final charge. No one in the room was surprised. Those who knew Kravis best never believed he could let go a deal this size. And if we bid, Kravis emphasized, we bid to win. That afternoon, Peter Cohen convened the management group at Shearson. Everyone had an idea where the bid should be. $100 a share, simply repeating the earlier bid, was felt to be a slap in the board's face. The group believed some kind of raise was in order, if only to allow directors to save face for having extended the auction deadline. In the end, Cohen and good friends settled on $101, a $1 bump. Later, the strategy behind the bid would be hotly debated. Did Cohen and the others genuinely believe Kravis was bowing out of the bidding? Many admitted they were fooled, though not Cohen. Debate aside, the truest indication of the management group's belief was its final bid. Cohen's $101 was a tacit confirmation that, just as they had in the weeks before their initial announcement, the management group once again expected no competition. At First Boston, Fenebresk hovered over the Citibank team all afternoon. All he needed was a letter saying Finn's idea was doable. It was 4.30 when the Citibank team finished. The letter was quickly inserted into the bid packet, which was then messengered over to Skadden. In its wake, Jim Maher was philosophical. He told himself it was a valiant effort. Their chances of success seemed minuscule, but, Maher reasoned, he had beaten long odds before, just nine days earlier. Maybe it would happen again. George Roberts' head was bowed as he entered the Kohlberg-Kravis boardroom a few minutes before five o'clock. Arrayed before him, a dozen of Wall Street's highest-paid investment bankers waited anxiously for news of Kohlberg Kravis's bid. Roberts addressed the group in funereal tones. We're sorry, he said. We decided to forget it. It was just too much. He paused. The room fell utterly silent, the sound of $100 million in fees slowly evaporating. Roberts sighed. What did we bid, Henry? I think it was 106. Is that right? Kravis nodded. I think that's right. Standing to one side, Dick Beatty would never forget the banker's reaction when the charade was unveiled. You could see the dollar signs light up in their eyes, he would recall. It was like, woof! We're back in the ball game. Yeah! Invigorated, they all sat back to wait.
In the Shearson camp, spirits were high. No one gave Kravis much thought. The management group scattered that night for dinner and reconvened at the offices of Wilkie Farr by 8 o'clock. There'd been no call by that time, but no one was particularly worried. John Goodfriend and Jim Stern sat down and started a poker game. By 9 o'clock, Cohen and Nussbaum were growing a little nervous and got on the phone to Goldstone. If Kravis was out and First Boston was really an air ball, they should have heard something by now. For those gathered at Colbert Kravis, the waiting was agony. Then, a few minutes before 9 o'clock, Dick Beatty took a call from Peter Atkins. We'd like you and some of your team to come over, Atkins said. Beatty fought the urge to grow excited. Is the other side being invited over as well? I can't answer questions like that, Atkins said. Kravis, too, held his excitement. They'd been through this drill before. Told they wouldn't be needed at Skadden Arps, Kravis and the four general partners headed out to dinner. Beatty, meanwhile, assembled a small squad of lawyers, investment bankers, and associates for the trip to Skadden Arps. Kravis had just sat down when he was called from his table to the phone. It was Beatty. They're going to want you to come over here in about 45 minutes, Beatty said. While we're eating, we'll be there. We're in good shape, Beatty said. Things look good. After hurriedly finishing dinner, the five general partners were at Skadden Arps within minutes. Kravis looked for signs of the management group, but saw none. Felix wrote and asked, Is this your best offer? Yes, Kravis said. Well, if we can work out the securities and get comfortable with regard to financing, we're prepared to recommend your bid to the special committee. Kravis and Roberts looked at each other and broke into smiles. A winner! After six weeks, Kravis and Roberts were on the brink of victory. All that remained were two sets of final negotiations concerning the merger agreement and the bid securities. With any luck, Kravis figured, both sets of talks could be wrapped up in a few hours. The committee was scheduled to meet the next morning to make its recommendation. With nothing else to do, Kravis and Roberts sat back to wait. Once the meetings were underway, Peter Atkins headed upstairs to his office. A stack of phone messages awaited him there. The first call he returned was to Jim Maher. For all the sturm and drang, First Boston's final bid had been quickly dismissed. Practically all the key questions about the initial proposal remained unsolved. Maher, at home in his west side apartment, hadn't been able to stand the waiting any longer. Peter, he said when Atkins called, I'm sitting here, you know, this is killing me. Should I set up waiting or can I go to bed? No, nah, Atkins said, I think you can go to sleep now. As the evening wore on, Steve Goldstone paced his office nervously. Where was the call? By half past nine, he could stand the suspense no longer. He called Atkins. Are we out of it? Goldstone asked. Look, Atkins said, all I can tell you is we don't need you tonight. You can tell your people to go home. Goldstone's news sent electric shocks through the gathering at Wilkie Farr. Moments later, the group got a second shock when they found out that Kravis had just been summoned to Skadden Arps. They were thunderstruck. Kravis? Again? Chaos broke out among the advisors at Wilkie Farr. Everyone had an idea of what had happened and what to do. Jack Nussbaum thought a letter was the answer. It was important to get their anger down into writing. So as Cohen and the investment banker shouted and cursed around him, Nussbaum began dictating. Johnson, Horrigan, and the rest of the RJR Nabisco executives were passing the time over drinks at Nine West when they heard the news. That's it. Lights out, Johnson said. As far as I'm concerned, it's sayonara. When Goldstone heard Kravis was at Skadden Arps, he immediately redialed Atkins. $20 billion and more than a few careers, maybe even his own, were on the line. The management group had been cheated, Goldstone insisted. They had been placed in an untenable position, indeed robbed of victory by that lunatic first Boston bid. As the first round's high bidder, they had no incentive to boost their offer. In essence, Goldstone argued, they were forced to bid against themselves. To be fair, he insisted, there had to be another final round of bidding. While listening to Goldstone's argument, Atkins received the letter of protest from Nussbaum. Atkins set down the letter and frowned. It was going to be another long night. Meanwhile, Johnson reached Charlie Hugel, who'd already been briefed by Atkins. Although it was a breach of the auction process, Hugel revealed to Johnson the amount of Kravis's bid. When Johnson got off the phone, he refused to tell anyone exactly what Hugel had said, but revealed that as far as he was concerned, it was all over. A few minutes later, he called Cohen and the group at Wilkie Farr and gave them the same information. Outraged, Cohen and the others pressed Johnson for more facts. I can't tell you much, Johnson said finally, but I believe there's a 4 or $5 spread. I can tell you, you're not going to beat a $5 difference. Peter Atkins got back to Goldstone at 12.30 and said there was no question of reopening the auction. I can't say this strongly enough, Goldstone replied calmly. You have a legal obligation to hear our second bid. The directors are obligated to do it. We want to bid again. 
Goldstone was right in one regard. There were no rules governing the bidding process. What exists is a constantly changing body of law developed during a series of takeover battles in the mid-1980s. Peter Cohen had too much on the line to give up now, no matter what Johnson said. Immediately, he picked up rumors about the composition of Kravis's bid. Apparently, Kravis had boosted his number by offering more securities than Shearson and less cash. Well, if Kravis could increase the pay proportion of a bid, why couldn't Shearson, Cohen wondered. He had no idea what he wanted to bid. He simply wanted to keep his options open. Around 3 o'clock, Johnson left for his apartment, wanting nothing more to do with the buyout he half-wished he'd never thought of. Goldstone, though, wasn't inclined to give up so easily. Never mind what Johnson wanted. If they wanted to win, they had to bid, and they had to bid right now. From his office, Goldstone called the group at Wilkie Farr and pressed his case. Guys, actions speak louder than words. Forget about sending letters, just bid. Wait a minute, John Goodfriend said. We're not going to bid until we know what we're bidding against. For all they knew, Kravis was only a dollar ahead. But try as they might, no one in those early morning hours could find out for certain exactly what Kravis had bid. By 3 o'clock, the Wilkie Farr group was exhausted. Drawn faces had replaced the fighting spirit. By sunrise, they knew Kravis would probably have a merger agreement. Maybe, they said, shaking their heads, it really was over. Slowly, people began to leave. Four blocks away at Skadden Arps, negotiations crept on through the early morning hours. Kravis was thrilled. They had the company. The deal was all but over. Then shortly after midnight, Bruce Wasserstein took a call from his partner, Joe Perella, who was in Tokyo. Perella had just seen a wire story carrying details of Kravis's bid. The story, which would appear in the next morning's Wall Street Journal, suggested Johnson might bid again. Robinson Kravis hit the roof. Someone, probably in the special committee, was leaking details of their bid, no doubt in an effort to spur a higher bid from the management group. The auction was supposed to be over, but if the management group wanted to come back fighting, they now had an idea what price they had to be. It was impossible to stop Cohen from bidding, they saw, but they could hope to hurry the bid by placing a deadline on it. They settled on 1 p.m., just two hours after the board meeting the next morning. It gave the management group an eight-hour window in which to attack. With any luck, Kravis bet they'd already given up. They hadn't. When Cohen woke that morning, every bone in his body screamed to rejoin the fight for RJR Nabisco. He dialed Jack Nussbaum at the lawyer's home. What's to stop us from making another bid, Cohen asked. Nothing. This is what I want to do. It was a quarter to eight, Wednesday morning, November 30th. As the directors trickled into Skadden Arps, Atkins gathered them in a windowless conference room on the 35th floor. Atkins updated the directors on the previous night's events, concluding with Kravis's ultimatum. If their bid is not acted on by one o'clock, they will withdraw it. Felix Rowaton could see on the directors' faces their relief at being able to select Kravis the winner. Ross Johnson had become a national symbol of greed. No one in the room wanted to hand the company to him. Many were secretly glad their choice was clear. As the meeting wound down a few minutes before 11, Hugo alerted his fellow directors that after a short break, Henry Kravis and George Roberts would be invited to speak to the board. Oh, and one more thing, Hugo said. Ross Johnson is here. Johnson woke that morning feeling as if a great weight had been lifted from his chest. In a way, it felt good to have the whole fight over with. Around 9 o'clock, Cohen called, sounding excited. We're going to make another bid. What do you think of going higher? Johnson had long since lost his capacity for disbelief. Nothing coming from the mouth of a Wall Street executive would ever surprise him again. What the hell, he said. If you want to go in there and raise hell, go in there and raise hell. This was Shearson's game now. Johnson arrived at Skadden for the board meeting a few minutes before 11. Jack Nussbaum met Johnson, and together they waited until 11.30 with no explanation. Nussbaum dialed Cohen at Shearson and told him he thought they were being stonewalled. The meeting's going on without us. If we're going to go with a higher bid, we'd better damn well do it now. Cohen said, I'll call you back. At 12 minutes past 11, Travis and Roberts walked into the boardroom, accompanied by Rather and Beatty. They were all getting nervous. That morning, the papers reported that Johnson's group hadn't backed out of the bidding. So far, there was no sign of them. Now, as they entered the boardroom, Kravis and Roberts were all business. As the directors fell silent, Roberts outlined their strategy. It was a solid presentation, tailored to soothe. For another 15 minutes, they took questions. How firm is one o'clock, a director asked. Let's stick as close to one as possible, Kravis said. Afterward, Hugel and Atkins followed the Kravis contingent into another room. Hugel was adamant that before a final vote was taken, a number of smaller issues be negotiated, what Rather described as incredibly chicken shit stuff. To one side, Roberts looked to Kravis and rolled his eyes. Twelve o'clock, one hour to deadline. 
At Shearson, Cohen's office was a hive of activity. Cohen was ready with a bid number when Nussbaum called back. Nussbaum nearly choked. The bid was $108 a share, $25 billion. Nussbaum felt they had to do something to apply pressure and reopen the bidding. He dialed Atkins' office and told the secretary to tell Atkins they had a new bid to put in and that he was going to announce it publicly. Nussbaum thought, maybe that'll get their attention. It did. Atkins walked briskly to find Nussbaum, who gave him the details of Shearson's bid. Afterward, Nussbaum called Cohen. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think we've wedged ourselves back in. It was 20 minutes before one when Atkins returned to the small office where Kravis and Roberts waited. The atmosphere inside was chilly. Atkins spoke. We've received something, and we can't live with your one o'clock deadline. We need an extension. Absolutely not, Kravis said. Peter, we're not going to be diddled around. Last night you tell us you're going to recommend us to the board, and we've got a deal, and everything's fine. Now it turns out our bid's being shopped. We're not giving you any more time. At 12.50, a headline crawled across the Dow Jones News Service. In boardrooms and trading floors across the country, brokers and investors looked up in amazement. RJR Management Group boosts bid to $108 a share. A Kohlberg Kravis associate phoned the news to BD Kravis and Roberts. Kravis had to sit down. It was the realization of his worst fears, although he had to admit it didn't entirely surprise him. Johnson had all night and all morning to assemble a new bid. Now, 20 minutes from victory, everything had changed. The auction wasn't over. The company wasn't theirs. The world wasn't fair. And suddenly they were behind, $108 to $106. Curses filled the room. Then, as abruptly as their anger flourished, it cooled. Maybe they could make this work to their advantage. They told Atkins they would extend their deadline on one condition, pay our expenses to date, and we'll stay another hour. This way, they kept pressure on the board and at the same time made sure no matter what happened, they came out with something. They got what they asked for, $45 million to wait 60 minutes. Incredibly, Atkins and company thought it was a good deal. A few minutes past one, Atkins called Nussbaum. In lobbying in the $108 bid, Nussbaum had emphasized that all its components were negotiable. Now Atkins said it's time to end this thing once and for all. We want your highest and best bid. We'd like it in 15 minutes if you can. In seconds, Nussbaum was on the line with Cohen. Cohen took a deep breath. He called Goldstone. We could go as high as 115, Cohen told the lawyer. I want to be preemptive and end this thing. Goldstone wanted to pinch himself. 115? Just six weeks ago, Shearson was telling Johnson this company was worth 75. What Shearson needed to proceed, Cohen explained, was for Johnson to chop two more points off the management agreement, almost half what he was to have received. Goldstone relayed the request to Johnson. Sure, why not, Johnson said with an ironic laugh. He had given everything else away. But if we go any further, Johnson said, we're going to be owing them money. Nussbaum gave the details to Atkins. Ross Johnson, Shearson Lehman, and Solomon Brothers were boosting their bid to $112 a share. At 124, Atkins delivered the news to the board. Shearson's new bid seriously complicated Atkins' life. On one hand, he had Kravis at $106, with the securities already negotiated. It was solid. It was also second. On the other hand, he had the management group at $112 a share, but with no securities firmed up and with no reset mechanism in place that would guarantee the securities would trade where Shearson said they would. For all he knew, the bid was really worth $105, but he needed time to determine the precise value. He needed to push the Kravis deadline back again, a way to keep Kravis at the table while they negotiated the management group's securities. When he went to discuss this with Kravis a few minutes before 2 o'clock, he found it wasn't necessary. Kravis had decided that if they pressed hard now, the board would be forced to capitulate. His team came up with an extra $2 a share. It was financial hocus-pocus, they knew, but the board didn't have time to argue. The Kravis bid was now $108. Atkins and the board advisors were stunned. Now what? The board was in a quandary. Three hours earlier, it had been on the verge of giving RJR Nabisco to Kravis and Roberts. Even with Johnson at $112, it was clear that every director in the room still wanted to go with Kravis. The only problem was the scorecard. Johnson 112, Kravis 108. In the end, they had no choice but to negotiate with Cohen's people. 
At 10 minutes to four, Louis Rinaldini of Lazard reluctantly led a team of investment bankers downstairs to begin discussing the management group's securities. Restless, Kravis and Roberts went for a walk. When they returned to Scadden Arps around five o'clock, Dick Beatty, his lower back aching from an old football injury, was sprawled out on the floor asleep. Paul Rather had moved to another room to escape Beatty's snoring. Fuming, Kravis and Roberts sat back to wait. Again. Three floors below, by seven o'clock, Johnson had had enough. He asked Goldstone whether he was needed. When the lawyer said no, Johnson's group prepared to go to dinner. He emerged from the building into a gaggle of television cameras. Who won, reporters shouted. Who won? The shareholders, Ross Johnson said, not missing a beat. The board reconvened at ten past six. Rinaldini reported that Cohen and Goodfriend refused to put a reset on their bid securities, fretting that it would lock them into guarantees that would cost them tens of millions of dollars. According to Felix Roatan, that meant there was still no clear indication the Shearson offer was ahead. Finally, it was time to deal with Kravis. The board, Atkins told Kravis and Roberts, was willing to give them one final opportunity to bid. Kravis and Roberts were too startled to speak. One final bid? Hadn't they been through this five hours ago? The Kravis team deliberated one last time. What should they bid? Around and around the room they went, and when they stopped, no one was surprised to find they were boosting their bid again by one dollar a share. They decided to give the board a deadline of a half hour or Kravis would leave. It was 8.15. The fuse had been lit. The last bid in hand, Roatan and the investment bankers huddled in a corner of the boardroom. To the untrained eye, Johnson's group was the clear winner, $112 versus $109. But things are rarely that simple on Wall Street. Cohen and good friends' refusal to include a reset mechanism meant their bid had to be discounted. Roatan addressed the board. In my business judgment, he said, these offers are essentially equivalent. A dead heat. It was the last thing the directors wanted to hear. Now they would have to make a decision. In their hearts, every person in the room knew how the board felt. The problem was finding a legally defensible reason to feel that way. To help the board make its decision, Roatan pointed out a half dozen differences between the two bids. Like some financial smorgasbord, each board member now seized on one of the differences to justify his selection. The vote was unanimous for Kohlberg Kravis Roberts. Atkins led a cluster of board advisors to the Kravis contingent. He closed a copy of the contract and handed it to Kravis. Here's your signed contract, the lawyer intoned. Congratulations. It's yours. Kravis went numb. He'd been fighting for this so long. He had lost eight pounds in the last six weeks. He took the agreement from Atkins and said, great. Roberts said little. All I could think of was how much work was ahead. Atkins led the procession three flights down to the Shearson group. Only Atkins went in. I'm sorry to report the board has signed a merger agreement with KKR. The bids were dead even, but the board decided to go with KKR for other reasons. Atkins explained that all the facts would be contained in an SEC filing in the next few days. Then he shrugged his shoulders and walked out. Ross Johnson was gracious in defeat. Arriving at Nine West, the first thing he did was open the bar. Then, scotch in hand, he took time to talk with each of his executives, clapping them on the back and congratulating them for fighting the good fight. Not everyone took defeat as well. As the evening wore on, Ed Horrigan grew bitter and morose. He had never really believed they could lose. Well after midnight, everyone had left except Goldstone, the Robinsons, and Ross and Laurie Johnson. The five of them sat around the table in the fishbowl conference room. Linda was helping Johnson with a press release to be issued the next morning. Goldstone could tell Johnson was starting to wind down. You remember that time we talked about the price of doing something like this? Johnson asked the attorney. It surely was painful, just like you said. But I'll tell you the same thing I told you then. I don't know what else I would have done. It was the best thing for the shareholders. It was the right thing to do. Johnson's driver was up on the floor, waiting for the group to break up. Johnson rose from the table and said, let's go home. Epilogue. In the wake of history's largest takeover battle, the face of RJR Nabisco quickly and radically changed. 
Ross Johnson resigned the day Colbert Kravis took control of the company, pulling the cord on a $53 million golden parachute severance agreement. His successor as chief executive, ironically, was drawn from Shearson's own corporate parent, American Express President Louis Gerstner. John Grinnis, the man who turned on his old mentor, remained head of Nabisco and endeared himself to the new owner, Henry Kravis, by delivering on his promises of stepped-up profitability there. With gains in operations, the trimming of fat like the RJR Air Force, and the sale of more than $5 billion worth of food businesses, RJR managed to keep its head well above water in year one of the LBO, despite reporting a $1 billion annual loss in 1989. Reynolds Tobacco remained embattled, however, snuffing out Premier, launching another ill-fated brand called Uptown, and losing further ground to its rival, Philip Morris. The worsening outlook for tobacco, among other things, prompted the Moody's Credit Rating Agency to lower its ratings on RJR's massive debt in early 1990. RJR's junk bonds sunk to only about two-thirds of their original value, and a dark cloud settled over the company for Colbert Kravis. The firm must reset those bonds to their original value in April 1991, which could wring much of the profitability from the RJR deal. RJR's bond woes, though, were just part of a general collapse of the famed junk bond market. With the bankruptcy of Drexel Burnham Lambert and the failure of such highly indebted outfits as the Campo Retail Empire, the luster was suddenly gone from leverage, and the roaring 80s were abruptly over. The bank lenders and institutional investors who so eagerly poured money into RJR in late 1988 wouldn't touch debt-driven deals by mid-1990. The RJR saga was firmly cemented as the high watermark of an amazing business era. Of course, Ross Johnson liked to take a personal measure of credit for the demise of the LBO. No chief executive would dare launch one, he figured, after seeing what had befallen him. I scared them all back into the closet, Ross giggled. Johnson lived the life of Riley in semi-retirement, traveling widely, working on his golf game, and setting up a consulting business of sorts in Atlanta. His travel itinerary did not include Winston-Salem, however, where he remained persona non grata. There, the LBO rained some $2 billion of checks onto the world's biggest concentration of RJR shareholders. But that heavy rain also wiped out 2,300 tobacco workers' jobs and swept away forever the company that was once its own. RJR workers weren't the only ones to lose their jobs. Peter Cohen, shocked to learn of Linda and Jim Robinson's true role in the RJR fight, eventually broke with the Robinsons and was forced to resign from Shearson in early 1990. A series of management pratfalls at Shearson and a botched restructuring of the firm's executive suite clinched his fate. By that spring, Cohen was unemployed, spending much of his time in a nasty fight over his severance agreement. Ted Forsman, though defeated in his own quest for RJR, felt thoroughly vindicated by the subsequent collapse of the junk bond market, proving to many that Forsman's warnings of a dire economic collapse might in fact come true. In the months following the battle, Forsman, who continued to spend more time attacking the crevices of the world than completing deals, was constantly in demand as a speaker and lecturer. Henry Kravis won the battle for RJR, but he may have lost the war. Rumors of federal anti-takeover legislation combined with the collapse of the junk bond market to quash practically all major LBO activity for 18 months following the RJR deal. Colbert Kravis itself failed to complete a single major LBO during this period, contenting itself with sundry European investments and with managing RJR. In the end, the founders of both RJR and Nabisco would have utterly failed to understand what had happened to their companies. In the mind's eye, it is not so hard to see R.J. Reynolds and his compatriots wandering through the carnage of the LBO war. They would turn to each other occasionally to ask puzzled questions. Why did these people care so much about what came out of their computers and so little about what came out of their factories? Why were they so intent on breaking up instead of on building up? And last, what did all this have to do with doing business?
We hope you've enjoyed this program from Harper Audio. For more information about the broad range of titles from Harper Audio, Harper Children's Audio, and Cadman, please visit our website at www.harperaudio.com. You can also call 1-800-331-3761. Thank you for listening.